I really want to thank Miro, one of the most useful tools. They sponsor this podcast. They are my go-to resource when it comes to working remotely and collaborating. They're also great for an office, but let me paint a picture for you. Everyone here is working from home in some capacity. Either we have peers that work from home, maybe we're part in the office, part out. Collaboration can be chaotic. Miro is the ultimate digital whiteboard and visual collaboration platform. You could be a remote team, you could be a creative agency, you could be a solopreneur. Miro allows you to brainstorm, plan, and execute seamlessly. Picture this, you're in a virtual meeting mapping out a huge project with Miro. You can drag and drop sticky notes, sketch wireframes, organize ideas all in real time. You collaborate with your team no matter where they are. This is a game changer. If you are ready to transform your workflow, you have to try Miro today. To show you how powerful it is, I created my own Miro board that you can check out at Miro.com slash success pod. It has a ton of resources for entrepreneurs, but it will also show you all the functionality of Miro. So go to Miro.com or go to Miro.com slash success pod for a ton of resources. Try Miro today. It's going to radically change how you collaborate with your team. Welcome to Lessons Episodes of Success Story, part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. These Lessons Episodes will be shorter conversations with past guests, valued members of the Success Story community, and myself. They'll be focused on teaching you actionable, insightful takeaways that you can use to upskill your personal and professional life. You, you start to see more and more prevalent security threats and more complicated security threats. And there's always been threats, right? But do you notice that uh, more companies are creating dedicated teams? Is this more of a, like a 2023, is this like a, you have to have like a, a CISO in your organization as soon as you can get one because there's just so many bad actors and they're so sophisticated? Is this like the norm now? I think it's been kind of developing as the norm for a number of years. And so I kind of like in my career, uh, I kind of see a few couple milestones. So in 2013, there was a couple of major retailer breaches. Mm-hmm. So you saw like Target and a few others. And that was kind of the point at which it became clear that a security incident was not just going to affect the chief security officer. Uh, it was also going to affect other C-level executives um, at the company. So that, that was an interesting kind of development. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, you had 2016, you had the election interference and the hack of the DNC. Mm-hmm. That kind of, you know, was another big aspect Fast forward to 2020, everybody went to work from home. There's the, you know, the joke of like, which C word uh, major, you know, drove the technology innovation at your company? Was it the CTO, the CEO, or the COVID-19? Because everybody overnight went work from home and that brings, you know, radically changed the security landscape. And then, you know, kind of, you know, fast forward to today, you know, these inflection points keep hitting and then we have a big one, at least for public companies, with the SEC rules uh, that, you know, are... Currently, a proposal most likely going to pass that are going to require that they, you start to report on the cybersecurity expertise of your board, that the board has to acknowledge that they have cybersecurity oversight responsibility, mm-hmm. kind of setting out rules and requirements for reporting of cybersecurity incidents. And then just even uh, a couple of days ago, the Biden administration putting out the national cybersecurity strategy um, from, the, from CISA, the Critical Infrastructure Security Administration, as part of DHS. They set out kind of like, here's how you know, technology is critical. Uh, security issues in technology are, you know, kind of affect the entire American people. And here's what we're going to do to make sure that companies are taking responsibility for this, because there's really an underlying current of, 
you know, kind of so what? Like we have a security issue, the stock price rebounds, you know, maybe someone loses their job, but it's like not that big of a deal. Except for it, it has, you know, started to become a big deal and the companies are starting to realize it. But I think politically, the regulators are starting to say, look, we have to get involved and push companies harder and faster. When you look at what the SEC is doing, is it enough? Does the SEC know what good looks like or is there more that has to be done? So I think that's a that's a great question. Uh, I think where the SEC is largely, in my opinion, catching up with uh, where highly regulated organizations, right? So like financial services, yeah. um, healthcare, places like that, had already had a lot of these kind of requirements in place. Uh, where the SEC is kind of coming in is it's clarifying that this isn't just those industries; it's all industries, and also clarity, you know, clarifying wise, you know, SEC's goal is always. We need to empower investors and protect investors. And so what what requirements are there? You know, if you have an incident, but the incident maybe doesn't reach this, you know, you know, this kind of mythical material level, well, what does that even mean? Like SEC is kind of laying out like, well, no, here's what that means. Here, you know, here's what you have to put into your 8K, which is yeah. the form that you have to file when there's a, a you know material incident. Uh, and here's like specifically how long it's been going on, kind of like the criteria of it. Uh, I, you know, are they going far enough? I think that's that's a great thing we'll kind of see over the next few, you know, over the next few years if you know companies really start to increase their reporting and the visibility. If it, if, they know, take if the them sunlight seriously. actually, if the sunlight yeah. actually kind of acts as a, you know, acts as an agent of change. Um, but I, I don't know. I, you know, I think the, a lot of the a lot of the regulated industries were already this or already this way, especially if you are regulated out of states like New York, where they mm-hmm. have already had very stringent requirements for financial services companies. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of these things are things that you had to do already. I've always found that on average, nonprofits do not have the expertise that the for-profit business world has. And I'm interested as to you as like a, a case study as to what made you want to move into the nonprofit world. Because somebody with the information security background from PayPal, I would say there's unlimited career opportunities, potential money out there that you could go chase after. And I think that's actually a problem that a lot of nonprofits have. I think that they do not know either how to or cannot afford to pay because the business model is suffering to some degree to pay the salaries of the people that can move the organization forward and not even just information security, like sales, marketing, everything. But you made that conscious decision. And I think that like, that's remarkable. So I, I feel safe with, with GoFundMe. I feel safe with Classy, but I think a lot of nonprofits suffer from this, which is why you see trust in nonprofits start to degrade, to be quite honest. So what, what was that thought process for you? How did you make that jump? Why would, why were you able to do that? Why did GoFundMe look towards somebody who was like highly capable to bring into the organization? Yeah, so you know, I I spent you know as I as you mentioned I spent a number of years at PayPal and kind of you know I knew my next steps I wanted to kind of stay in financial services so I actually went to and spent a little bit of time in insurance uh, you know just to try out try my hat on another kind of financial services sector mm-hmm. but you know my passion is for payments and it's weird to say but like I kind of got really good at it I learned <laughs> a lot about how the banking system works uh, how messy it can be but how functional in, in a lot of ways it is and how important it is you know you look at a lot, you know, a lot of the last couple of weeks here with, uh, you know, the the Fed and the banks uh, in the U.S. and uh, so that that I wanted to kind of stick to that. And so GoFundMe and Classy offer a way to kind of like for me stay in payments, but also feel a lot better about what I was doing on a day to day basis. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Now that you know, obviously hold no animus towards any of my prior employers. We we were doing great work, but it helps. You know, day to day, I feel the impact a lot more at GoFundMe and Classy. Um, in terms of you know, you raised up a great point around. Nonprofits and you know 
that's you know the whole kind of government NPO sector, uh, ha, you know NGO sector has a real a real deficit of talent in a lot of cases. There's recently been a case where uh, you know the uh, NSA and others have like been like, hey, we want to do a talent swap with industry where they want to go to like Google and you know and Facebook and others and say like, hey, we'll 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 swap people with you. Like you can kind of send your best security engineers to us and we'll train them to help us in our fight against you know, whatever it is. And then they'll work for us for a few years and then we'll swap them back. And, you know, kind of like, you know, as a mm. way to like maybe get talent, that's an, something they've kind of floated recently. I think this is, you know, it just goes to show you that there's a real, um, there's a real issue here. And a lot of that kind of stems back to uh, just, you know, start, you know, nonprofits have a lot of the, from my experience, have a lot of the issues startups do, you know, they're small, they usually have very limited resources, scrappy team, everybody's, mm-hmm. The thing I love about being a startup is everybody did everything, right? Like my yeah. job description when I joined Braintree said that I may be asked to take the trash out. Yeah. And I thought that was awesome because I, I was it was something I was really passionate about. I think the people who work at small nonprofits, small to medium sized nonprofits, have the same passion, uh, but you know maybe a little bit different mission alignment, right? They're mm-hmm. really very philanthropic, like kind of looking to the do you know do the most good. And the key thing I see is sort of the funding, right? So. In a startup, you know, another dollar going towards AWS or, some, or GitHub or some developer tool, you know, kind of makes sense. It's you know, an investment that you're kind of making towards the future. When you're in a nonprofit, a lot of these dollars, like you want to maximize your dollars going to programs. Mm-hmm. How can I deliver whatever help my nonprofit is trying to deliver? I want to maximize that, which means, you know, paying less on salaries, investing less in training, investing less in you know other things until you get bigger and you hit this kind of inflection point at which. You know, you kind of have to make that risk-based decision, but smaller organizations, community organizations, they're really trying to maximize the program, um, the, how much they can put into the program, which means they have to minimize a lot of other stuff. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 